Father, we come before you just grateful for this Christmas season when we could celebrate the advent of your son. And I pray that this message will get us ready for an even greater day in the future. I pray that you will use this message to give comfort to those who need it, to convict those who also need it. Lord, I thank you for your Holy Spirit who ministers to different people in different ways at different times, depending on the needs. So as the word is preached, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will do his work. In Christ's name, amen. So it's eight days until Christmas. Are you ready for it? Oh, I see a lot of shaking heads. Have you done your Christmas cards? Have you taken your Christmas photo yet? You're in big trouble if you haven't. Have you decorated the house or the Christmas lights up? I imagine you have to do a lot of gift shopping. And usually when it comes to Christmas preparation, it's the females in the house that do most of it, isn't it? And I, have, I actually have data to back it up. I read of a study that 25% of men do their Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve. 25% of men walk into Walmart desperate to find anything to give them their wives, and that's why they seem to give robes every year. So ready or not, Christmas is coming. And when you think about Christmas, it it commemorates the first advent of Christ. And when Jesus was born as a baby, there was no expectation that he was going to take over things right away. There's an understanding that he is born, the hope is realized, and that in the future he will grow up and eventually take the throne. And so people had time to prepare themselves. Christmas was kind of the the celebration of the divine D-Day. And we celebrate it once a year. We can all get ready for it because we know that Christmas will fall on the same date every year. It's up to you to be ready for it. But there's another date. It's an undisclosed date. One of these days will be Divine Victory Day. Right? It will be the day when Jesus comes back and he takes what rightfully belongs to him. And you can't prepare for this. At least, you don't have advanced notice. As Jesus is teaching his disciples on the importance of laying up treasures in heaven, he gives some parables to prepare his people for divine victory day. Turn with me, if you haven't, to Luke 12, 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, That if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for us all? And the Lord said, Who then is a faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give him their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much is given... Of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they'll demand the more. So ready or not, Jesus is coming. And if you're ready for it, it's going to be a great day. It'll be a thousand times better than your best Christmas ever. If you're ready for it, if you're prepared. Now, when you think about being prepared, you might think about the preppers. Some of you are preppers. You have the magazine prepper. You know exactly where to dig the bunker. You have stashed ammo, freeze-dried food, ham radios, bottled water, purification tablets. You have it all. You're ready for the big one. And a lot of times when people are prepared, they're almost ready for the apocalypse. But what they don't realize, if you're on the wrong side of the apocalypse, no bunker is going to rescue you or protect you. There's only one way to be prepared for the apocalypse, and that is to be right with the Lord. And here we have three portraits of preparation. Jesus can come back at any moment. The question is, are you ready for it? Are you prepared? Now, to get there, you have to do three things from this passage. One, place yourself in active service. Plan on being surprised and prepare yourself for judgment. You do those three things. When the Lord comes back, it'll be the happiest day of your existence. If not, we'll get to that later. So how do you prepare yourself for the coming arrival of the king, the second advent? First of all, you place yourself in active service. Look at verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. Now that stay dressed for action, Action, it literally means tuck in your robe, right? Back in that day, they would wear long, flowing robes, kind of allows for some natural air conditioning. The problem is when you get busy and have to move, you could trip over your robe or it could get dirty. So what they would do is they would tuck it in their, into their belts, right? So saying dress for action is like put your boots on, be ready. If you have a shoeless house, you put your shoes on. You're ready to go out at a moment's notice. Secondly, he says, keep your lamps burning. Now, we live in a day and age where you just light a switch, right? It could be dark at night, and you kind of feel around for the wall. Here's a light switch. You're okay. But if it's pitch black in the ancient Near East, it's very difficult to light a lamp with flint and rock, right? 
in the dark. So the idea is you always have to have that wick wet. You always have to have it trimmed. You always have to have enough oil in the lamp so that it's burning at all times. So the idea is your robes are tucked in, the lamp is burning, and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes back and knocks. Right? The house is secure. You're waiting. Wedding feast can go two to three days. And these servants are ready at a moment's notice to open the door. It's kind of like the, the, you are babysitting for someone. And they call you and let you know that we forgot our house key. Make sure things are, knocked, you know, are, are closed down. And we'll ring the doorbell or we'll, we'll knock so that you can open it when it comes, right? And so you try to stay awake so that you can vindicate yourself as a good babysitter and get another job doing so if you're into that kind of thing. And so these servants do exactly what they're told. Through the night, they're staying awake. And then he arrives. Verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, This is a turn here. He will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Now, there's other places where the master returns and he makes the servant still serve him. But in this case, the master comes home. He is delighted that his servants have been faithful. Then he tucks in his robe. He puts on his boots. He says, you guys all recline at the table. I'm going to be serving you tonight. What does this remind you of? Right? You think about Jesus, right? Taking the attire of a servant and washing his disciples' feet. You see, this tells you a little bit about the disposition of the master. His inclination is to want to bless and to serve, to minister, to bring comfort, to provide, to nourish. Right? When you're ready for the return of the Lord, this is the type of reception you're going to get. It will be the greatest day of your existence. Verse 38, if he comes in the second watch or the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Right? The Romans would divide the night into four watches, each about three hours long. So the second and third watches would, would range between nine and three in the morning. And so they go through the trouble. They are ready. They're anticipating. They are found doing exactly what their master wants them to do when he comes. I'm reading a biography of uh, John Rockefeller, you know, the richest man who ever lived, at least at this point in history. And you would think that he was this loud, bombastic, powerful personality, but he really wasn't. He would come into the office almost unnoticed. And then during certain times of the day, he would take a break and he would just kind of roam around the different offices. And bookkeepers would feel a little tap on their shoulder and they'd look up and there's John Rockefeller. And then he'd say, may I have your, your ledger, please? They would hand him the ledger and he would leaf through everything. 
and he would find a mistake. In fact, one person said, I only made one mistake in the entire ledger, and he found it in two minutes. Now, can you imagine all of a sudden there's a tap on your shoulder and there's your boss? For one thing, you'd want to be awake, right? <laughs> right that's the time to be awake. You'd also not want to be checking, you know, Jayhawk scores, <laughs> right? What, what do you want to be found doing, right? Exactly what your boss wants you to do. And so that is the issue. While he's away, place yourself in your master's service. Prepare yourself by serving him. Secondly, plan on being surprised. Plan to be surprised. Look at verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Right Now, for a thief to have some success, he has to take advantage of the element of surprise. And if you know when the thief is coming, the thief will be unsuccessful. A number of years ago, we had some burglaries in our neighborhood. And I remember driving home. And as I drove home, I saw three garage doors open. And in each garage door was a homeowner sitting in a lawn chair with a rifle laid across their lap. Right? Not in my house, not on my street. I felt pretty safe. I waved to them like, yeah, we're your neighbors. You know us, right? Okay, good. Right? Without the element of surprise, the thief will be unsuccessful. Now, what's interesting is that the Son of Man doesn't need the element of surprise. But isn't it interesting that God has not chosen to tell you exactly when he's coming back? He wants you to plan on being surprised. Expect the unexpected. Plan on being surprised. And the reason why is if, if you knew exactly when he was coming back, it'd be easy to delay obedience. Oh, he's coming back in a week? Well, I'll break my addiction before then. Oh, he's coming back in, in a year? Well, I'll enjoy this immoral relationship right now. I'll deal with the consequences later. You know, I'm going to start giving money right before he comes back. I'm going to do a nice lump sum, and I'll write that big check when I know he's going to come back tomorrow. Oh. But you know what? In all of these cases, if you plan on being surprised, it means that you don't put off getting serious about your walk with the Lord. It can happen at any moment. And Jesus tells us this on purpose. And if you're not ready for when he returns then judgment awaits. Here he, as we keep on reading, Jesus tells you to prepare yourself for judgment. Now Peter is hearing all of this. I'm sure he likes that part about how Jesus will come and, and serve him. Blessed are those servants who are prepared. And he asks the question, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? Is this narrowed to just the disciples and your followers, or is there a broader audience to this? And Jesus begins with a parable. And the Lord said, Who then is a faithful and wise manager 
whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Now, when he talks about a household, here is a landowner who has a lot of property, who has a large household. In fact, we know from Genesis that Jacob had had 66 members in his household. And to this particular manager, he says, I'm going to give you the food allowance. I want you to make sure that everyone is taken care of while I am away on business, right? Pretty simple assignment. So how does this slave conduct himself? Verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. This servant does exactly what the master wants him to do. He plans. He makes sure that everyone is taken care of. He's making sure that all the families are provided for. Everyone has a place to stay. Everyone is in better shape when the master returns than when he left. And truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Instead of just managing the household expense account, he's in charge of everything. This is like the role player in basketball who hustles in practice, is successful for the 10 minutes of playing time that he gets, and then he's promoted to be a starter. This is like the, the lowly worker who takes a, a shift as assistant manager and does so well, he's given charge of the whole apartment, or whole department. Right? The reward is greater trust and greater opportunities. That is the blessing. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming. Before the day and age of cell phones, phones, mail that would get there in a timely manner, there are all kinds of reasons why a master might be delayed. He might have another business opportunity that requires a a lengthy presence. He might have missed the window for traveling. Uh, Perhaps he's laid up and he's sick. Perhaps he's dead. There could be a number of reasons that this master is away way longer than this servant thought. In fact, there might be some speculation that he may never come back. And so he sees an opportunity. This is like the teenage son who's in charge of his siblings, his younger siblings, while the his parents go on a, an around-the-world vacation. He doesn't know when they're coming back, and now he's able to do everything he really wants to do. He brings his loser friends over. They play video games all late into the night. All the money that was left to buy groceries is spent on Grubhub. Pizza at 2 a.m. in the morning with large tips. When the siblings complain, he tells them to shut up. When they start threatening to call mom and dad, he takes away all privileges from them. He even uses physical force to make sure that they don't turn on him. And he begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Here he uses his authority to exploit those under his care. He thinks that the master is going to be gone forever. And the master's not around to tell him anything differently. Shut up. Get in line. This is my house. But then there's a 
A plot twist. Verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know. This master is making his way back after a long journey. He's about four hours away from his home. The sun's setting. But he decides, you know what? I'm going to push on. So he pushes on so that he can be there. And he'll show up sometime between the second and third watch of the night. When he finally comes home, he notices a few things. For one, all the fields are rather shaggy. The herds are half their previous size. He goes into the barn to put up his donkey, and he notices two of his servants lying in the, in the stall. And when he takes a good look at them, he, he notices that they look emaciated and that they are bruised. And, and he also remembers that they're servant quarters. Why are they sleeping in here? Then he makes his way to the main house, and when he opens the door... He sees a bunch of people that he does not recognize passed out all over the floor. He sees empty wine jars, wine bottles. He notices half-eaten food, carcasses. And he sees the servant he left in charge of the place passed out on his couch. And that's when he starts putting all the pieces together. This servant who I put in charge exiled his servants, starved his servants, beat his servants, ate half the herd, drank all the wine, and invites all his loser friends over to squat on this place and defile my property. And as he's moving towards this servant, he's getting pretty upset. So he wakes up the servant, and the servant immediately groggily opens his eyes and then does, uh-oh. But by then, it's too late. The master of that servant will come on a day he does not know, when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, in verse 46, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Now, it's interesting, it doesn't say put him with the unfaithful and then cut him into pieces. And this kind of sends a signal, doesn't it? If we were to decode this parable, the master of the house would be who? Jesus, the son of man. Not friendly Jesus. Son of man, he's pretty upset, Jesus. The faithful servant would be those who have been given a certain responsibility to care for his other servants, right? When Peter says, is this for us? The answer is yes. This is for you. Jesus would go away and live care of his people and his flock in the trust of his under shepherds. And those who exploit that kind of power, who use their headship and who use their authority to enrich themselves at the expense of other people, Those are the unfaithful shepherds who, contrary to what they believe, will not go to heaven when they die, but will be consigned to the realm of the unfaithful. 
So return to Peter's question, is this parable for us? Yes, it's for you, Peter. With greater authority comes greater responsibility and greater accountability. I talked to a pastor friend of mine this past week, and he uh, shared with me an issue that's going on in his church. One of the men who at one point in time led a Sunday school class rather successfully and was renowned for sharing the gospel and was respected by all members of the church started having marriage problems. His wife had to go to the hospital, was there for a lengthy period of time. He gave her one token visit. As more information came out, it was very clear that this man ruled his family with an iron fist. Random outbursts of anger put his family on edge, and he always had a Bible verse to let them know what they needed to do. My friend wanted to intervene and tried to bring them in for marriage counseling, and he made it very clear that I will only go to marriage counseling if you're going to fix my wife. I don't need to be fixed. Well, when his wife left the hospital, she wasn't sure if she can trust him with her physical safety because he seemed to be almost happy that she was in the hospital. And now he's leaving the church and made it very clear that no one is going to tell me what to do. And I'm sure he has a Bible verse to back that up. See, there are many people who are placed in charge whether it's the family, the church, who use their authority to enrich themselves at the expense of other people. And when Jesus comes back, they're not going to get the well-done, good, and faithful servant. They'll meet the fate of this unfaithful servant. Is it for you, Peter? Yes, and all with spiritual authority. But then he also asked, Jesus, is this for, for us all? Well, the answer to that question is yes. Jesus expands the application from not just spiritual leaders, but really to everyone in verses 47 through 48. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Now, notice in both cases, when when Jesus comes back, they receive a beating, right? There is divine punishment meted out. This is not believers who get beatings, right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. These are people who know better and then people who don't know better, but all of them do wrong. In the judgment of the sheep and the goats, Jesus explains in Matthew 25, 41 through 46, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Pretty severe punishment. For I was hungry and he gave me no food. I was thirsty and he gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and he did not welcome me naked, and he did not clothe me sick and in prison, and he did not visit me. Then they will also say, answer saying, Lord, 
When did we see you hungry or, or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Notice how they plead ignorance. We never saw you. We, we had no idea. And Jesus says, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it for the least of these, you did not do it for me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Right? You should have known better. Right? What? There is a God. We have been created by him. That is obvious to everyone. And you reject him, there will be a beating, albeit a lighter beating versus someone who knows better. If you grow up exposed to the gospel, exposed to the truth of God, and you reject it, as I mentioned in my sermon about a month ago, right, there's a special place in hell for those who knew, know better and reject it. And, and what's the standard? Verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Ready or not, the Lord is coming back, right? And I know this is not the feel-good Christmas message we're all hoping for with the poinsettias and the trees and the songs. But when we celebrate the first arrival, doesn't it make sense to think about the second? And so here's the question. Of all the sermons... You can listen to, you're listening to this one at this moment. Is the Lord trying to tell you something? How do you get ready? Well, I want to give you three additional calls. You fear the Lord. You live a life of integrity. And you never delay obedience. You do these three things. The return of Christ is going to be wonderful. First of all, you fear the Lord, right? We are often controlled by what we fear. Let's say you're swimming in the Pacific Ocean. You're about 200 feet off the coast. And you notice that right next to you is a dorsal fin. And the dorsal fin is circling all around you. You have swim goggles on, and you look underneath. There's a great white shark, 15 feet long, full of muscle, and apparently curious. Now, as you swim to shore, which would be the responsible thing to do, what are you always mindful of? Where is the shark? Where is he? Right? That is your controlling thought at that moment. Right? When you're afraid of something or fearful of something, that is what controls you. Everything is done in response to that. Now, when it comes to the fear of the Lord, the people who don't have the fear of the Lord right, should be afraid. People who are, don't have a conscious awareness of the presence of God, well, some passages that apply to them would be Hebrews 4.13, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Right? We will answer for everything that we've done. God not only sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So for be good for goodness sake, right? 
There's a lot of biblical truth to that song. <laughs> no creature is hidden from his sight. Now, this is not a bad thing. It's a bad thing is, is if you are not comporting your life in a way that honors him. But what if you're his servant? Second Chronicles 16.9, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. Uh-oh, he's watching. But it goes on to say, to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Psalm 139.7, Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? You can never be away from the presence of God. He's ready to assist his children and his people, right? Same reality. Right? If that shark was your friend and protecting you, you look at it very differently. Right? The fear of the Lord is having a caution, conscious presence of God and knowing that, you're ple- that he's pleased with you. And did you know God can actually be pleased with you when you are his child? When you have been redeemed? He, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. You are permanently his child. He delights in you, wants to protect you. There's no better friend, no better father than the Lord when you fear him. But when you don't, there's no worse enemy, right? Knowing that the Lord can come back at any time means that you begin to fear God. And this leads to you living a life of integrity. Now, to have integrity means you have an undivided life. You're not one way around your family, one way at church, another way at the office. You are the same person. Not only on the outside, but on the inside as well. You act like you act whether somebody is watching or not. In fact, when, when you think you're alone, that is one of the true tests of integrity. Years ago, a, a man was visiting his father at a convalescent home in Florida, and his father had dementia. He wasn't able to communicate. And as this son looked at his father, he noticed that he had all kinds of scrapes and bruises all over his body. And he's like, what's going on? So he did what any responsible son would do. He planted a hidden camera. Came back a few weeks later, and this is what he found out. Whenever his father was being changed by the workers, they would slap, kick, and punch him. I imagine that they would have acted very differently if there was a camera on them, right? When they know somebody else is watching. Is it enough to just know that the Lord sees and that the Lord is watching? You go to Walmart and you realize that you didn't pay for an item. They will never know. They will never know. But you know. And then you have to make a decision. Do I honor God in this moment or not? Do I take it back or not? It's their fault for having self-checkout. You can make all the excuses, right? But who you are when nobody is looking is who you really are. Do you live a life of integrity? Do you live like God actually sees what you're doing and he actually cares about it? Well, this righteous servant, he conducted himself with integrity. 
He did exactly what his master wanted him to do, and there was a great reward. You live like the Lord can come back at any moment, which is the same way you would live if you had a real fear of the Lord and you were aware of his conscious presence at all times. At all times. Thirdly, do not delay obedience. Do not delay obedience. Now, the evil manager was not ready. He put off obedience. He didn't think that the Lord was going to come back. Perhaps he thought that, you know, I'll just kind of deal with it later. You know, what's interesting about the evil manager is he was competent enough to get the job to begin with. Apparently, he was a good faker, but when nobody was around, his true colors came out. See, a lot of times when you have a grace-based understanding that you could be instantly right with the Lord, you can think, you know what? I'll have my fun first, and then I'll get right with the Lord. Now, if you believe in karma, you can't do that because the more you live unfaithfully, you're going to have to pay for it in future lifetimes. Or if you come from a Roman Catholic background, the more you live unfaithfully, well, that's going to quadruple your time in, in, in purgatory, right? But because we believe in the gospel of grace, there's this understanding that instantaneous, all clean, instant heaven, and I'll be fine. And so you can think to yourself, you know what? I will obey later. When I'm on my deathbed, then I'll get serious about my faith. But the fact that the Lord can come back at any time means that there may not be a deathbed you can convert upon. The fact that you can die of a brain aneurysm in a moment or be hit by a car driving to Strong City, you may not have time to get your life right. Secondly, the more you wait, the harder it will be to repent. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, if you have the unfortunate experience of being burned, right, what happens to the skin? It gets cauterized, and it loses sensitivity. You see, the more you sin, the more your conscience becomes insensitive. You don't pick up on sin. It's not that big of a deal to you. And if you are not tender towards sin and sensitive towards sin, you won't be sensitive towards repentance, and you'll get harder and harder and harder and harder. You put off obedience. If you know after listening to this message there is something I need to do and you don't do it, you walk away with an even harder heart. Don't say to yourself, I'll repent later. I'll break off this relationship later. I'll get serious about my sin later. They may not be a later. Scottish theologian shared a fable about Satan and three apprentice devils. He told them, I want you to find a way to deceive the masses and drag more people into hell. And so all of these devils went off and did their research and considered what lie they might tell to persuade more people to rebel against God and continue in their unbelief. Well, the first devil returns and tells the master, I will tell people that there is no God. 
And the devil said, well, that will work for some people, but most people know deep down there is a God. The second devil appeared to Satan and said, I will tell them that there's no hell. Interesting. Well, that will work for a lot of people, but still most people know that there is some judgment to come. Then the third one appears to the devil and says, I will tell them there's no hurry. You will deceive millions. Great idea. Right? The greatest danger is not the belief that there is no God or no hell, but that there is no hurry. Today is the day of salvation. Right? On one hand, we need to prepare that the Lord can come back 100 years from now. That's why, you know, you still have bank accounts, you still have savings, you still need to be responsible. But if you knew the Lord was going to come back tomorrow, you'd make some changes. Probably skip the, skip the gym because you're going to get a resurrected body anyway. <laughs> right? But that's not an integrity issue, right? If you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow, what would you change today? What would you change today? Why haven't you changed it? Ready or not, Jesus is coming. And if you're not ready, it'll be the worst day of your life, followed by even worse days. But if you are ready, you'll be greeted by your loving master who will take you into his abode and serve you. You'll be part of a celebration that is a million times better than the best Christmas you've ever had. Jesus is coming back. Are you ready? Are you happy about it? Are you looking forward to it? For the Christian who's walking faithfully with the Lord, that is the hope that we have. But look at this broken world. We see death, we see suffering, we see evil. But we know that there is a happy ending waiting for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Jesus didn't tell you this parable so that you would run from him, but that you'd run to him, knowing that the only way to truly be prepared, the only way to truly deal with the evil that is resident in all humanity is to have a new life, to become a new creation, is to trust that 2,000 years ago when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sins so that when you believe in him and follow him, he not only takes your sin, he gives you his righteousness. He's in heaven and he's waiting to return and collect his children to himself. Are you ready for this reality? Ready or not, right? Ready or not, Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for the comfort of these promises. We're also grateful for the fire that this lights. I pray for anyone here who knows the right thing but is hesitant to do it, who's in no hurry to obey, that they will be motivated to do so, that they will be ready for the return of Christ. And I pray that this reality will sanctify our souls.
We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.